Special thanks to everyone who pledged money to crowdfund the show this week, including David Walker, Tim Edwards, Iliko Ella and Andy Hagen. There's a full list of all our supporters on 361podcast.com, along with the information on how to support us from as little as $1 per episode via Patreon. Hello and welcome to 361, a weekly podcast about mobile tech and everything around it. My name's Ben Smith. I'm Ewan McLeod. And I'm Rafe Blanford. This is Season 11, Episode 7, and this week we are talking about trends for 2016. Yes, we're looking at virtual reality, pondering apps that aren't apps. Speculating on the future for payments and getting enthusiastic about messaging as a platform. Welcome back, chaps. How are you doing? Come on, let's do it. Uh, feeling very happy after a Merry Christmas. Oh, yes, I've forgotten Christmas has happened, hasn't it? It has, yes. The geese have got fat already. Did you have had a nice Christmas? I will. I, I mean, I have had a nice Christmas. This reminds me of schoolboy Latin, trying to get the verbs right. Did you do Latin? I did, yeah. Did you not? No. Did you do Latin, Blum? M.O.A. Massa Massimatis Amartisament. Exactly. Oh, come on. Veni, vidi. Exactly. Nate's Council Concedi. I think I've done this joke before, but I, we, we had a textbook that was a story about some people that lived in Pompeii, and I was just praying for the volcano to go off, just because <laughs> inevitably, the book, surely the book had to end. You know? So both of you did Latin? Very briefly. Yeah. What did you do? Uh, Smith, give us some Latin. Well, I, all I can do is decline verbs like Rafe just did. That was it. So I can remember some slightly unsavoury Latin that sounds like a bit like rude English words, but oh, okay. we, won't, we won't go there. Well, that's very impressive. So Not really, hasn't it? I'm <laughs> representing those listeners that didn't do Latin. Well, no, exactly. Good. Well, that was an unexpected turn of events. Um, Who how knew? You? Who knew? How are you, you McLeod? Uh, pretty good, thank you. Very, very good. I am welcoming the new year. I'm currently enjoying a bit of time off, which would be jolly nice. Rafe Blanford, what are you currently doing? I'm also enjoying some time off. Are you on the estate or are you back up in the London pad? I think I'll be on the estate, which is in your imagination, but I will be going back you to say Sussex. That. I just noticed, though, after 11 seasons, we've finally now got you referring to it as if it's a thing. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I'm slipping. You know, it's like Pavlovian almost. <laughs> Any kind of dessert, really. Okay. Excellent. Thank you to all of our loyal listeners. Hope you all had a nice festive period. Yes, and uh, thank you for all the uh, the nice messages and feedback and everything. That was all very... And all the gifts. <laughs> oh, do you get gifts? Yeah. Fair enough. Now, we are... So my address is published, that's why. Fair enough. Uh, Rafe Blanford, what are we going to talk about today? We thought we'd talk about some big trends for 2016. It always happens this time of year, but we've uh, kind of been gazing into our slightly murky crystal balls and just wanted to talk about... <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. He's walked into that one, yeah. listeners. Go on, Ray. Tell t- us more t- about tell your... Tell us about your murky balls. Oh, dear. Come on. We thought we'd kind of pick out a few topics to talk around. Things that we think are going to be big are going to come to the forefront of consumer attention and the industry attention this year. Yes. Okay, so avoiding the obvious joke about what's going to be big in Rafe's murky balls... Mm. Um, Ewan, let's quickly talk over the topics that we're going to cover, because we've cherry-picked a few, because obviously right, you can't yeah. cover a whole year in 30 minutes. So what are we going to have a quick look at this no, time? We're, okay, we're going to have a look at virtual reality. We, we have actually talked about that briefly on an episode. We have, we covered that before. Last season, right? And then we are going to look at automa... Oh, hold on a minute. Let me put my mouth in, teeth in, or whatever it is. Atomization. Atomization. Dear me. Atomization, I'm terribly sorry, I'm embarrassed, of apps. Atomization of apps, then mobile payments, payments via mobile or through mobile, and then messaging as a platform. 
Right, well, that all sounds a bit nerdy. Right, no, it was fun. Just it's because fun. I came up with them, they're not nerdy, Ben. Virtual reality is not nerdy, and I am quite excited about that. So, Rafe Blanford, kick us off on virtual reality. What do you think the 2016 trends for virtual reality are going to be? Well, I think the first thing to say is it's been around for a long time. Mm. I mean, we've had simulators and virtual reality at various scales. But I think the important question is, why are we talking about this as a trend for 2016? And I think there's two reasons for this. Do you think 2016 could be the year of mobile? I think it might be. I I think every year should be the year of mobile. Is it post-mobile? Yeah. I don't think we've quite got that far yet. Well, I think we're definitely post-handset. Post-operating system. That's interesting. Anyway, I've detracted from your sensible point with my my facetious comments. So if VR's been around for a while, why is... It's been rubbish for a while, let's be clear. Okay, well, maybe that's it. Why is this year the year? So I think there's two things. First, it's cheap, and that's really represented by Google Cardboard, which has been coming to the fore for a while now, but it was noticeable that last year the New York Times gave away one million Google Cardboard as part of a kind of launch for a VR film. Now, and what are Google Cardboards, just in case you've missed that? So this is a VR headset that you can effectively make by doing a few cardboard folds and putting in some glass lenses and sticking your phone in the back. I was the only one in the public could do that, by the way. Okay, I'm, I'm impressed you. All the RBS techs, the only person that could do it was me. When you say do it... Because, uh, you know, it comes flat-packed, this little cardboard yes. thing. Oh, we see. So you're claiming origami skills, are you? Yeah. Fair enough. And yes. you basically hold it to your head, or you can use a rubber band or something like that. And then you look into it, and essentially it's a kind of a poor man's VR headset. But when you can do this for, you know, it's a fiver or something yeah. like that. And then you can get plastic versions of cardboard for around 20 or 30 pounds. Plastic versions of cardboard. Yeah, which just doesn't sound right, does yeah. it? Now, before we move on, I just want to challenge you. Five pounds for the headset, yeah, but you do need to put a smartphone in it. So is VR really cheap or is it just cheap enough it's a good point i would say it's now cheap as an accessory to a smartphone and making the assumption that a lot of people now have smartphones they're capable of doing you know when we're talking about you know ownership levels in some countries approaching 70 or 80 percent there's a good bet that some will have a smartphone there's certainly a good bet you have a smartphone if you're listening to this so it's accessible to on your smartphone on your, you're probably listening to it via your, your smartphone, via your Sonos. I mean, by that same argument, you know, any of these app-led businesses also now have a market because, you know, smartphones have reached that point. I actually think the more important things in making VR, as you and kind of hinted at earlier, not crap, is actually the fact you've got consumer-level kind of pro VR coming in and Oculus from, from whom yes well Oculus Rift has been the standard bearer they're talking about a Q1 launch but you've also got Sony VR going to launch probably towards the end of uh, Q1 you've got HTC Vive and I've been reading really positive reviews of the Vive for anyone who's used it has said mm. how impressive it is as a system yeah and the reason for that is it's actually room scale VR in that you can get up and walk around with it on so it's much closer to that kind of Star Trek holodeck feel than Oculus Rift which tends to be sitting down a more static VR experience. To be pedantic, you can get up and walk around with any of these systems on. It's just whether or not that's a smart thing to do. And that's right. And the Vive is sort of designed around being able to do that. And there are some you know, sensors and various inputs what to allow Xbox you to do that. What's the Xbox thing? Oh, I forgot. I can't remember. What's the Xbox thing? <laughs> the adapting get for the Xbox that you can, you can wave at the TV. Connect. Right. So this is how I'm viewing it. Basically, by the end of the year, I think we will see virtual reality headsets being marketed as one of the things that you can buy to enhance your entertainment experience. 
just like you would, you've got an Xbox, or you want to get Xbox Connect. Yeah, and I think that's interesting because actually you can see Samsung doing exactly that with the Gear VR, which has become kind of almost the must-have millennial accessory for your smartphone. Listen to Rafe Blanford in touch with what the millennials like. Well, technically, I just about qualify as a millennial, um, which I discovered <laughs> to my horror the other day. Did you? Uh, yeah, just 18 before but the didn't, year. But didn't you go to um, Oxford? No, I didn't go to Oxford. Okay. I went to Cambridge. That's a kind of heinous mistake. Yeah, yeah, very funny. Year. Anyway, <laughs> the point about Gear VR is actually Samsung is starting to make a play of all the things that its smartphone connects to, and they've done it with the wearables. They're starting to do it with smart things that we've been talking about in our smart home competition. VR, I think, is one of the most accessible because it's going to be about £100 as an add-on. So as a millennial, though... <laughs> I really regret that. It's refreshing to have you in the room, though, because finally we can find out what the young people think. And yeah, oh, it really gives you a different perspective, doesn't it? It does. It's nice to be able to see one up close. I feel young. Walk into that one. Young, you know, yeah. when he's in, well, in the room. I, I just feel more vibrant. Like, That's you right. Know, maybe I, I've been re-energised by Indeed. the youth in the room. Indeed. But I don't doubt all of what you've said, Rafe, about you know the cost of the devices and the availability and the ubiquity and the, maybe even some consumerization. But why are people going to care? I mean, what are you going to use virtual reality for this year that you didn't use it yeah, for last what's year? Yeah, So I think the big problem is still content with mm-hmm. VR, and I think it's going to take a while for that to get sorted out. I think it will be around gaming to start with and to a certain amount of kind of visual experiences. I'm, and I'm talking about VR movies. I mean... Oculus themselves have kind of set up a studio to produce them. But it's going to take a while for that to get anywhere. So while it's a trend for 2016, I think it's still going to be pretty niche. But as you start thinking about the implications of virtual reality, it has very, very broad applications. And I think some of the more interesting ones are outside the obvious entertainment ones. And I think that will happen. It's just going to take time like any Do you mean in the context of adult entertainment, for example? I wasn't actually thinking that, but it's interesting that your mind went there. I was thinking about... I've been reading a lot dear listener, about adult entertainment and virtual reality, because I think that'll be the gateway. It's just about the articles, isn't it? <laughs> no, no, I thought it was Fast Company or something reading about it. There's uh, a, an adult entertainment company that are producing 3D virtual reality right. content. Yes, I can. Well, I was actually thinking about its what were you thinking a- about? application for things like Buildings health. insurance. And there is the, the kind of the, the fitness thing, and it actually yeah. reminds me what a big thing the Nintendo Wii was when it came out. Yes. All about Wii fitness, and I wonder if something similar could happen with VR. You've got to be careful. You've got to be careful, but I actually think the more interesting one is in treating therapy, where it's actually being used for things like post-traumatic stress disorder, because being able to put people in an environment becomes very interesting in that sense. And also for pain management and things like that, it allows a level of immersion that previous technologies haven't. But you can also then think about the enterprise uses where potentially in businesses it could lead to process change. So, you know, what does a meeting look like in VR? What's the right price point just before we move on? That's a tricky $99. one. $99? I think it's going to have to be the you know, yeah, $100, £100 price mark. Want to pay more okay. now, yeah. Yes or no answer, Blanford. Are we going to see people wearing VR headsets for, Walking ed- down the street. for entertainment? Well, I was thinking on the tube, you know, or, or on, in public transport. No, I see it as something that happens in the home. I don't think you can do that, can you? Not on the tube. 
Well, look, I've seen all manner of things on the tube, but we haven't got time to go into that now. Okay, Okay, next up, we're going to talk about atomization of apps. And this one's an interesting one because I've I've only just learned what this means. And Rafe, you're going to school us on this. But the way that we were talking about it before the show was going back to the beginning of season 11. And we talked about WeChat and Ewan's trip to China. Mm. And we talked about how WeChat was this WhatsApp come Facebook Messenger-like service. But you were raving about it being plugged into every business. Connected everything the platform now. And Rafe, you were explaining that actually the atomization here is about using third-party platforms as ways to distribute content, you know, through, I say, it could be Facebook, it could be WeChat, it could be YouTube, it could be any new platform that's devised. I think, you know, rather than owning your own publishing mechanism. Have I completely... No, <laughs> You're uh, making I, a face. I, 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 I was I, looking for some endorsement there. No, I, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, this phrase really comes from atomization of content, which content strategists or content producers would tell you has been happening for the last few years in the web space or actually beyond that. And so it's what the, do you mean by that? Yeah, go the on. idea that you know traditionally content has lived within the publisher's control, either in a newspaper or magazine or on their website, but increasingly we saw it become available on third-party platforms. You think of things like YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, but also WordPress. WordPress and now we're having Medium, Facebook, Instant Articles, And that kind of idea that you will have an original story, but it will become almost atomized and spread into many other places. Now, you can talk about it in terms of content production, but I think in this instance, it's more interesting to talk about the publishing of that content. So from a a regular person's point of view, I mean, if you're involved in content production, then this may impinge on your life a bit. But as a regular person who maybe is more of a consumer of content. When am I downloading it? Well, this is it. How is this different, Rafe, from an online newspaper hiring somebody else's platform as the way to distribute their videos. Let's say The Guardian, for example, in the UK. Guardian Media is very unlikely to have their own video platform. They'll hire somebody else and use that to distribute their video content. Why is that them owning the content and yet them putting it perhaps on YouTube or in Facebook videos? Why is that atomization? And more importantly, why as a consumer do I care? He doesn't know. Cool. Right, let's move on. I just feel I'm starting to impinge into domains where I need to go and consult a proper content strategist. We, we have like 11 seasons and we haven't known what we've talked about. We should stick with it. So there isn't actually anything that's inherently different about this. It's just about the fact that the way people have consumed content has started to change in that we consume it in many different forms and in many different platforms. And so publishers have had to respond to that in the, the way they produce and distribute their content. And it's really this idea that, you know, like everything that is made up of different molecules and atoms, it can then get spread into many different places. And so the type of content you produce becomes different. I mean, I'm wondering whether we should actually get into the atomization of apps as the trend here. Right. Well, we'll come back to atomization of apps in a minute. But Ewan, rumor has it you once wrote a blog. So you are a content producer. You're a content producer, and you have other people to do it for you these days. I don't know. No, no, I still, I still do things, but carry on. Right. Okay, right. So, I'm a content owner, thank you, you. You are a content producer. Okay. So how would you feel about somebody discovering the bit of video that you shot of a product, let's say? You, know, yep. you go to a smartphone yep. launch, you write a blog post, you take a load of Instagram pictures, and you make a YouTube video of the unveiling. How would you feel about somebody watching the video because they find that on YouTube yep. by searching for it or by recommendation, but they're not seeing the rest of all of your content because you've gone to all this trouble of making pictures and words and video and maybe a podcast about it. So it's less of a problem for me because I don't monetize it. 
Okay, but if you're monetizing that or you're relying on eyeballs, that's a real problem because that means that you've effectively got the content for free because I want you on my website, I want you subscribing because that's the old model, right? But what about if if I had to go to your website, 100 people would watch the video, but if it goes onto YouTube, 1,000 people discover it. 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 I used to actually use my own video hosting platform, my own, because I didn't want it on YouTube, I wanted to control it. Uh, just because it was faster, I had better hosting facilities than, than YouTube. It was faster than YouTube, and then I thought, oh, Jesus, a new phone came out, I knew this, knew that, and I thought I don't want to have to keep transcoding the video myself and send it to YouTube. So I, I'm quite comfortable with that. But I can see a lot of publishers who still want to control the experience and bluntly the sponsorship and the advertising, and who want to, you know, if they've caught you on with the video, you'll then have to see loads of internal promotion to say, hey, please come back to my website. I mean, you still see it on YouTube when you're watching a video. Please, more videos available. Please click, please click. Okay, so this is all somewhat long preamble to get to atomization of apps, Rafe Blanford. So now we broadly understand what the concept of atomization is, or at least you... you I'm a massive fan of it in the context of Facebook. I really, really... See when someone links to an article that has hosted on Facebook. That's better for you. Oh, it's amazing. Right, because it's there. Fast and elegant. Completely. I don't have to wait for it to load on a very, very slow site that has to load all the idiot banner ads. Talking of fast and elegant, Rafe Blanford, explain to us what the atomization of apps is. So I think I want to explain it by giving you an example, and that's Spotify. Originally, it started out, you would get Spotify by downloading the app and experiencing it pretty much within that app. But increasingly now, people listening to Spotify will do it elsewhere. So it might be in their car. You made reference to that earlier in the mm. season. It might be on your Sonos Wi-Fi speakers or indeed any other set of kind of connected home entertainment system. And actually, you see these partnerships that Spotify is forming with a whole range of both appliances and third parties in order to kind of have Spotify elsewhere. And that means for some people, they'll actually experience Spotify more through those objects than they will through their smartphone. But when I use the Spotify app on my smartphone, I've got access to the Spotify content catalogue, of course, but I've also got their user experience, their recommendation engine, their curation, a bunch of other stuff. To me, they are the app and the curation and the content. When I experience it through, I don't know, my Sonos, for example, very crudely, I'm probably really only experiencing their content. So is there a risk there that Spotify, you know, is giving up some of the value, some of the stuff they sell, or some of the reason to use their service is going away because of that? I think there is a danger of that. Ewan talked about how he wanted to control his content, but you then trade that off by willingness to have people listening to it more, it becoming more locked in that service. Well, do you want becomes, me as a subscriber? Because um, that's, that's the value that yeah. I ascribe to my, my Spotify subscription. But if Spotify sells you a giant pile of records in the sky... Mm. They're worth, I don't know, £5 a month to you. If they sell you the best curated radio stations where you just press go and, you know, you get music you always like, they're worth £10 a month to you. This is the Apple Music model, perhaps, where where they've curated it. Is there not an argument that some app providers won't want to be atomised? They want to sell you the whole experience so they can monetize all the parts of it and then when they spot a gap, they can go there. Isn't it about attention? It is, and actually I think it's about the interaction points and people don't choose to follow the model that the company lays down necessarily. That's what we learned with content and the atomization of content. That's why traditional publishers have been you know, so disrupted. And that was rather translated through the web. I mean, I've chosen Spotify deliberately as an example where actually it works because it plays into their business model because basically they're interested in you having 
listening to more of their service because that's actually the way you're more likely to be retained as a subscriber. I think for some, it does mean a readjustment to the business model. There are a couple of things like this. I mean, we've also been discovering in our smart homes how actually it's not about the app on the phone very often. It's about making that smart automatic or delegated decision for you. But we're starting to experience those apps in the home environment, essentially. Is Uber being atomized or atomizing itself? Because I see it in different apps. Yeah, so I then wanted to translate it back into something that's actually where it hasn't gone so far. Because I think Spotify is kind of the ultimate example of this in the experiencing it in other spaces. But Uber and in general, kind of this idea of SDK or extensions for apps in Apple parlance means they can effectively be embedded inside other apps and you will experience them then, as Ewan's uh, alluded to there, the ability to order an Uber from inside, say, a, a restaurant or a pub app. And we're starting to also see that time with things like airlines when you know people are arriving at a new destination. Route planning apps, I mean, City Mapper, which is our favourite London travel planner. Like Uber in it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. And Uber, that, but not get taxi. No. So no, they, they, those are different, right? Oh, They've chosen Uber. one. Yeah. Or rather, Uber were first to the market and therefore have more visibility. Yeah. And that becomes interesting because that way of acquiring customers and you know starting a whole new flow gets interesting. But it's not just about those apps. I mean, we can also think about wearables and how effectively the Apple Watch has mini apps in it that are extensions. And Apple has very particularly gone after extensions of those. But we're also seeing Google Now on tap. And that's another example of where you're experiencing an app without ever going into it potentially. And we've seen it already with push notifications and particularly rich push notifications. I think we're going to see a lot more of this. And if I was going to describe it in one way, I'd actually say it's about seeing apps on the different surfaces. And those surfaces can be within the phone itself, i.e. another app, or at the system level, or can be in another object altogether, like a Wi-Fi speaker in a fridge or something like that. And so that's what I mean by the atomization of an app. And so the majority of time that you interact with an app's brand might not be in the traditional sense of a smartphone app. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that in 2016. Okay, time to move on. Now, a really quick one, because we're short of time. We're going to talk about payments. To say 2016 is going to be the year of mobile payments seems... So obvious. Both obvious and possibly somewhat late, given last year Apple Pay launched. There was lots of talk of mobile payments in general because of that, although obviously lots of people have been doing mobile payments long before Apple Pay came along. Rafe Blanford, reel off a few things that are going to happen in 2016 that make you think it's going to be dance mobile payments. So I just have to look into the crystal ball and say, yes, it's going to be the evolution of Apple Pay I think the obvious thing to expect there is peer-to-peer payments. You know, It's interesting that oftentimes peer-to-peer is one of the first things people do because it's relatively easy to do, isn't it? Yeah. Whereas this time around, they've gone for the hard stuff first. But actually, you pay more retailers than you pay people. Absolutely. And I think the other thing we'll see is Apple Pay in the web browser or in particularly in Safari. And that might then start translating into the desktop as well. So you use your phone as a payment mechanism for something that you're doing on your desktop, like for example. And there's all the kind of expansion of that. And Apple will roll out more partnerships. You'll go into more markets. Okay. But of course, Apple is only at you know, 20% of the global market. So Android Pay is coming along. Samsung Pay is coming along. Quite how that all shakes out is yet to be seen. But that is actually the mass market in some ways. And so I think it's really interesting to look at those and wonder you know is google wallet going to expand out of the us for example how is that all going to work because that gives a scale it hasn't had before how will google wallet and android pay relate to each other because you've got these t- 
two ends of the Google ecosystem. That's mirrored in other places as well, isn't it, in terms of the conflicts between Chrome OS and Android and various other pieces where Google has its fingers in lots of different pies. It does feel like Google has quite a lot of work to do to kind of make that a more cohesive offering. And it's made more complicated by the fact you've got something like Samsung Pay. And, you know, Samsung, will everyone will say they should just go away, but they're not going to. Well, can I be one of those people then? Because I, have, yes. I just assumed, so when we talked through this topic in advance, I just assumed when we wrote Samsung Pay on the agenda, what we were going to say was, Haha, Samsung you know, put a huge amount of effort into building Samsung Pay, and now they've been completely made irrelevant by Android Pay. You know, sucks to be you. But you, you both said no. No, absolutely not. So why am I wrong? They're going hell for leather with it. They are really working hard. Well, I would presume that Samsung are looking at Apple and going, well, they're doing it, so we probably need to do it. I mean, we joke about this all the time. When you buy a Samsung phone, you get all the Samsung services and all the Android services. And so you get, oftentimes you get two of everything because you get the Samsung variant and the Android variant. Why would people with a Samsung phone, and admittedly in in the markets we're in, you know, they're the dominant Android handset provider. Why would people pick Samsung Pay rather than Android Pay? Isn't Android more of a brand they recognize and trust? It's about what the consumer thinks. I'm struggling with this one. Because Samsung makes my fridge or my telly, whereas Google has my email and my... Just kind of in terms of my respect for the respective brands. Well, this is the trouble for Samsung as a manufacturer. And it's something that I talked about ages ago on the podcast. Because I think these big companies need to be getting us to subscribe to them and not messing around trying to sell me individual products. So what's the real answer, Rafe Blanford? Why does Samsung Pay matter? I think you have to remember that Samsung is of an equal scale to Apple when it comes to the number of handsets being sold, and that's going to trade back and forth. scale, yes, but what about user perception? So I think user perception continues to be a problem for Samsung, but I don't think we should write them off. And the reason I say that scale is important, because ultimately that's what will attract some of the financial institutions. Now, they will have to prove that they can make that happen, but Samsung have done some pretty silly things in terms of, in the States at least, they also support payments on magnetic stripe machines, which still represents a very significant part of the infrastructure in the States versus chip and pin in Europe. And so they're basically going to be able to use Samsung Pay in more places than they can use Apple Pay or Android but Pay. Chip and pin is coming It's many, many years later than, than you would have thought, but chip and pin is coming to the States. So It that- is, but it's going to take a long time for that to be fully rolled out. I think, you know, frankly... You can sometimes look down a little bit too much on Samsung. I don't think you can look down (laughs) too much on Samsung. No, I don't think you can when you think about what the poor consumer has to go through. Well, the reason I was dubious was not the scale, because you're right, but the point is that all the Samsung handsets that matter are Android. So any argument you make for scale about Samsung Pay surely has to be made for Android because it's valid for sooner them. or later, with the exception of those phones that might be in the market that do have one but not the other, within one or two cycles, everything that is a viable as a Samsung Pay device is also an Android Pay device. And they're actually distributing their own competition alongside their own product, presumably. Yeah, and we'll have to see how it shakes out in terms of is Android Pay and Samsung Pay on the same handset? I suspect they won't be. I think you'll just be offered Samsung Pay. You think Google... Pay won't be accessible through the Play Store or anything like that? I think it wouldn't have necessarily the same experience in terms of the integration, perhaps with the fingerprint sensor. I mean, this remains to be seen. I mean, we're speculating about what's coming down the road. And I think actually this is one of the big problems for Google and Android in general, that it doesn't offer that same kind of vertical integration that Apple can because it controls all parts of the stack. Let me ram that one home. Have you 
used a Samsung recently? I have, yes. And have you logged into it as a consumer would? Yes, I have. Okay, you, you haven't done that, Ben? No, I haven't, actually. Right. And therefore, Rafe, have you got a Samsung account? I do, yes. Oh, no, I do have a Samsung yeah. account because I tried to buy some smart things. That is completely different from a Samsung account. No, actually, the problem was they are the same account. To buy through the Samsung store, it is a Samsung account because I clicked the wrong button and it said, here's your Samsung apps, you don't have any. I, said, I don't even have an Android device. Leave right, okay, alone. then why I'm sitting here saying, no, that's different is because... I appear to have two different Samsung accounts. Oh, almost certainly. I mean, the process of logging in... With the same username. ...took 20 minutes and 19 passwords, so it's entirely possible. Right, but I I appear, maybe this is wrong, but I appear to have a Samsung SmartThings account, and I have a Samsung account that I logged into so I could get a 50 gig Dropbox account. Now, if, if I'm confused... What is the user feeling? Yeah. The, the, the end consumer. And then are they going to put their bank details on it? Are they going to attach their bank to it? This is a real concern I've got. So when we talk about trends, these things are going to become visible in 2016 is what you're saying on the Air Yeah, it. and I think it's more that Apple Pay launch and what's available. We will see the same thing happen in the Android world in a more meaningful way to that which it's sort of launched so far. I actually think all of these mobile payments still have a problem. I mean, the stats show that Apple Pay use has actually dropped off a little bit in the last month or two, going, I think it's from something like 0.35% of eligible transactions to about 0.25%. And there is still this problem. So it actually comes back to something we've said before. The most interesting thing for these smartphone-based payment systems is actually making payments super simple and easy in apps and websites rather than as kind of replacements for your credit and debit cards. So, so when, when you're in Starbucks, do you know how to get Apple Pay up quickly? I don't, but please tell me. You have to double tap the home button, right? That brings the phone yeah. straight into... But of course, I don't do that because that doesn't tie into Starbucks loyalty platform to collect your free coffees. So I, the addendum I'd say to, to what Rafe was talking about would be <laughs> that, yes, Apple Pay has to be in the browser, Apple Pay has to be integrated into all mm. the apps, but it also has to offer an opportunity to tie into loyalty platforms as well. Did you know Double Tap? Yes. All right, but consumers don't know this. When I tell people, they go, oh, right, I didn't, I didn't know. I've got Apple Pay. Just, it's quite a faff to get it out. It's quicker to bring their card out, right? So I'm standing in the queue. They've got their phone in their hand, and what they actually do is swap hands so they have the phone in the, in the right hand. They then put the hand in the, to get the wallet and bring out their card. And even the same applies to Apple They are Watch. enabled with Apple Pay, right? They can easily do it. It's just, it's easier in their mind to use a card at the moment. But I, I think that it's certainly in the UK, and, and you and I went and bought coffees after the last recording. Actually, you had some water from WH Smith's in the, the station platform. And I tried to use Apple Pay and it failed. And it turns out actually that the card reader on the machine was faulty because then my contactless card failed as well. But if you're going through a railway station or if you're a busy till and you're there with your phone, oh, look, I'm just using Apple Pay and it fails, you're embarrassed because like, you, you know, it, it's needless complexity. If it doesn't work with the dumb piece of plastic, the person behind the till and the people behind you who yeah, all hate you now for, be, for slowing down, they say, oh, that piece of hardware must be faulty. Because yeah. everybody does contactless now, it's the norm yeah. and you're not showing off. If you're doing it with your phone, you're showing off and therefore it's your fault if it breaks. Anyway, we said we would cover that one quickly. We've gone on messaging as a platform, Rafe Blanford. We started to talk about WeChat and things like that in atomization of apps. So why have we gone back to talk about messaging as a platform and this idea that messaging now becomes the basis by which you interact with things and businesses and artificial intelligences? While Blanford's thinking, can I just take a moment to say... Ha ha, booyah, up yours, operator. There's always time for that. Right, because four or five years ago, 
we were recording, yeah, I was still going to operator symposiums where people were trying to convince me that next generation SMS was the way ahead and that consumers would still continue to blindly pay 10 pence per 140 characters for enhanced, what do they call it, um, RTS? RCS. RCS. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I just had to look at these people going, <laughs> no, really, really? Can we just now say, ha-ha, done? Right? There's something about this strange mix of being an operator and finding this unique point in the market where you can milk people 10p for 160 characters just because there's this kind of desire that's not fulfilled any other way that makes you hugely optimistic that that situation is going to go on forever and ever and ever and (laughs) things will never change around you and that consumers will not work out a better way to do it when the technology catches up. So for me, certainly, I never ever use SMS apart from when I'm receiving notifications from companies that haven't quite upgraded to the app world. So uh, the only time I send SMSs now are to Mrs. Smith's BlackBerry. Yes, and people that have non-iOS devices, even green messages. Because it's a corporate device, it doesn't have WhatsApp on it. Because even other people I know with Blackberries, I'd send WhatsApps in preference to SMSs. Yeah. So this actually very nicely describes why it's important. You mentioned yes, because you and I think it's important. There you uh, go. Well, Done. obviously, and the kind of the, the stat here is that WhatsApp it's thirty billion messages versus twenty billion for uh, SMS. Eat that operator. So exactly, you're right to say this is actually in one sense an extension of the atomization of apps because it's apps existing on messaging apps. That's where messaging as a platform comes from. We talked about WeChat earlier in this episode, and actually Yuan talked about his experience with WeChat in China in episode one. And it's this idea that the messaging platforms have become so all-pervasive that over-the-top services are sitting right at the top of the app store charts. Nearly everyone has them, that they then become quite a good vehicle for services and apps, or rather a part of an app to be presented to the consumer. And you know what the precursor to this was? I was just thinking about this before we started recording. You remember all of those web apps back in the early days that had Google Talk interfaces? Absolutely. That's the analogy. There was a task management product called Taskly, task.ly, and it shut down now, unfortunately. But I loved it because you could set, retrieve reminders and tasks and you could interrogate oh, yeah, it yeah. over Google oh, it was really good, wasn't it? over Google Talk. And yes. I loved it because Google Talk was there running in the background. It was dead quick. I mean, I could use it on my mobile before they actually built a native mobile app. But this is the precursor because everything is there in that same comms window. Yeah, and that actual comms window has context and it has history. So it actually provides you with kind of a very conversational kind of interface. And that's where, you know, WeChat has been doing a lot of things. They've also been doing it by adding effectively mini HTML5 apps or websites um, to sort of get at some of these services. I think what we'll see is it happening much more in the chat window itself. And Facebook has started talking about this. They talked about it at their developer conference this year. The idea that you would kind of have these interactive bubbles that will effectively be special types of messages that will come back either in response to a message that you send or it might be an AI message and Facebook started talking about M and shown off some of that. They've said they're going to start in the kind of retail commerce and airline space. So for example, you will get a message from your airline with your trip itinerary. You will then on that same message thread then get information about gate changes or delays or when you're meant to check in. Now, some of the time that will link either to the mobile web or to the app in order to let you facilitate some of that additional service. But the key point here 
is that the messaging app, which everybody uses and is kind of a central part of their lives, becomes a hub for a lot of these other services. And the thing to think about here is there is a big problem in getting people to install apps. All the stats show that people install maybe 30 apps and only use about 10 intensively. Now, obviously, there will be outliers to that. But for companies going, how do I get to be one of those 30? Or should I have an expectation of being one of those 30? Being inside the messenger window is going to be, I think, an easier barrier to entry. And I think people will be a lot more accepting of having certain types of services consumed that way. And so I think it becomes a really interesting way for consumers to be present on the phone without necessarily having got over that app hurdle. Let, let me let me take you into the real world now because you've been talking there I think in conceptual terms. Conceptual terms. Rafe's got his strategy head on. Indeed, yes. indeed. Let me just talk about British Telecom. So BT and I've been quite attracted to their cellular offerings because I'm already a BT customer. It's five quid a month for next to nothing for any of everything. I've been thinking about getting some more sims. Now if I want to talk to British Telecom it's a nightmare. Right, it's a nightmare for me, nightmare for you. Um, well, how would you do it, Rafe? How would you ask British Telecom to send you a five quid SIM right now and right. do it in 10 seconds? Right now, I guess you'd do it via email. To whom? To what? Exactly. Right? Now, this, is the, this is the issue, right? And where this is going to get really, really exciting is when you just have BT on your Facebook Messenger and your interaction with them is quite simply you just say, hi there, can you send me a, a, a five quid SIM? Thanks, bye. Now, there'll be some qualification. That's why you need some good AI. There'll be the opportunity for BT contact centers to actually pick that message up, look at the context, have some suggested messages from the AI, and then process that, send it over to me, say, is this what you're thinking, by the way? How's your BT TV going? Before you know it, you've got a conversation going with me, right? There's two ways this is already happening, actually, isn't there? This is a given. The beginnings of uh, this. Yeah, the rubbish one is social media. Social so media. Through but, that, yeah. but that's that's why I think this could have legs. Because when things go yes. wrong, people go to social media to yes, have a conversation. The number one problem with all social media is what? It's in public. Oh, it's in public, and I don't know who you are. Yeah, yeah. Because, like you're not authenticated. For me, these are like desire lines. You see, people do what they want to do under pressure, yeah. and what they want to do is to ask in yes. their own language and describe their problem and ask for help, and they want to talk to the business. And so social media has started off collecting complaints because that's the time that people feel most pressured. But actually, social media is not the right place really for that to happen apart from when you're perhaps you know protesting when you're you know beginning to sort of mm. campaign or, or you know sort of do something more than actually just ask for service this messenger style piece would be perfect because you could then pass that information and it would as you say they would already know who you are the other one actually is look at the sequence of notifications that you get from amazon or an online retailer yes. during a transaction yes. you know we've received your order we've boxed it we've shipped it we've dispatched it here's the details of the courier the courier is arriving tomorrow would you like us to deliver it on a different day oh we've rescheduled your delivery mm-hmm. and those notifications now become almost oppressive because for every transaction there's 10 or 15 messages and, that well, and they narrate its journey a lot of them you can't reply to some of them you can a lot of them are coming from completely different numbers so it creates a mess in my inbox Right, because only that's coming from Amazon. That should be communication from, from Amazon, for example. If you want to see how this is working right now badly, and it's causing a huge amount of frustration for the companies behind this, look on to any bank social media site and take the time to actually look and see what the bank is actually doing, replying, and you'll see lots and lots of replies going, "Hi, thanks very much. Please, could you contact, um, contact us? Please, can you phone us? Please, can you fill in this form?" Because it's, it's someone saying, "Hi, I've got a problem." And it's the bank having to reply automatically almost because they've got a human there going bang, bang, send this template, send this template because they can't do anything 
They don't know who you are. Yeah. Now, once they've validated you, and you can do that through platforms such as WeChat or Facebook or Google, because these guys have a much better methodology of verifying you and a way higher success rate of making sure that when you're talking to Ewan, that is Ewan, if you think about your Google account being more secure typically yeah. than your bank account. In well, some cases. Facebook and all these companies will typically have your phone number, which is the first point of Right, so all that ID. needs to happen is you have to authenticate yourself once and maybe on a regular basis just to make all the security and the fraud people feel good. But once you've done that, any question, any issue you've got, it's going to be effortless for these companies to solve it. Now, when you add in artificial intelligence, that's where it gets really, really cool. It's not about human to human at all. It's about human to AI. And I think we'll probably, we're seeing it already, happening where these big companies that have to deal with their consumers and they have to keep the consumers happy on social media are beginning to say, do you know what? We need one single platform. What is it? Facebook. Cool. Uh, we need the glue. What's the glue that connects us together? And the answer is a company called Nexmo, N-E-X-M-O. They're doing some amazing work with the likes of uh, KLM and well, other airlines and so on. Well, it's underlying Facebook M, which is probably the AI people will have heard about in the context of this messaging as a platform. And it does change things. So I think calling out for 2016, I think we're going to see the early the signs of, of it. Of it yeah. I think it's like any of these new trends. Actually, you don't know ultimately where it will lead, but there's enough clues around things like you know live chat already exists on things like travel websites and retail websites and around service providers to make me think it's a format that people will be immediately familiar with the asynchronous nature of it makes it very compelling and as Ewan says that identity and strong identity and of course there is a network effect at work here if you look at the list of most installed apps Number one is Facebook. Number two is generally Facebook Messenger. And we're talking about the Western markets here now. There'll be other markets which uh, look a little bit different. WeChat has been the herald for this in China, but I think there's a lot more to come. And so for me, actually, Messenger really as a platform is probably yeah. the most exciting trend for 2016. Grant, well, we have gone very long, but we need so we need to stop there. But lots more conversation. I have to say, I'm I'm deeply dubious about some of that stuff. I think the uh, the sins of the call centers, the scripted call centers of the past, could could leak into AI. But just as frustrating as to talk to an AI as it would be to call center agent with a script who can't help you. First path is human, yeah. Then AI. We will come back to that one. Anyways, it has been a pleasure as always to talk to you. We should say a few thank yous. Editorial assistance provided by Emma Krauss and this week's episode edited by Mark from audiowrangler.co.uk. We will be back next week. We are going to have an update on our Smartest Home competition and we'll come back to that at the end of the season and let you know. Thank you very much for all your comments and feedback. I hope you had a lovely Christmas. Thank you to everyone who reached out to us over Christmas and got in touch on the social medias. We are at 361 on Twitter, 361 Podcast on Facebook and we are 361podcast.com. We will be back next week. Bye-bye.